Welcome to the Religious Studies Project. It's Monday, and we are your number one source for religious studies projects. <laughs> I'm David Robertson. And I'm Christopher Cotter. And we're brought to you, as ever, by the BASR and the NAASR. This week we've got Martin Lepage, so we're actually coming to you a bit from Canada um, this week as well. And he was in Pittsburgh, so in the US, and recorded an interview with Bronk Baller on um, embodied religious practice or ritual um, and cognitive neuroscience. So thanks um, to the sort of AAR regional conference that was happening in Pittsburgh for um, bringing Martin along. And we'll pass over to him now. I am here today with uh, Professor Brock Paler um, at the I E I R A A R, which is the uh, American Academy of Religion, uh, for this conference here in at the University of Pittsburgh. Uh, Professor Paler, hi. How are you? I'm good. Excellent. Um, uh, professor Paler is a visiting assistant professor in religious studies in Pittsburgh. Uh, his field of interests are uh, philosophy of religion, continental philosophy, ethics, uh, Christianity, and critical race theory. Uh, today we're going to talk about um, embody, embodiment religious practice, contemporary child psychology, and cognitive neuroscience, which uh, from this has to be a very interesting interview. So just to start, um, can you explain to me in a few words uh, who, what is cognitive neuroscience and how uh, it pertains to the study of religion? Okay. Um, uh, so I, I should uh, put a disclaimer. I'm not a scientist. I'm, I'm not a, a doctor in that sense. Um, but, you know, so cognitive neuroscientists study, you know, how the brain works and how it, you know, uh, how, how do we know other minds, you know, the age-old question, the problem of other minds. Uh, they study um, how neurons fire uh, when we see things and how, you know, when we sense things with our, our senses. Um, but I'm particularly interested in uh, the movement in continental philosophy and phenomenology known, known as embodied cognition, uh, this idea that... Um, uh, the the brain is not the only place that thinking happens, which is still a, a pretty you know the the residual effects of Descartes are still around us. This kind of uh, mind body dualism. Um, so a lot of cognitive neuro neuroscientists uh, continue to to think about uh, thinking and cognition solely as what goes on in the brain and and uh, cut out the rest of the body. Uh, so. Um, so the reason why it's connected to religious practice is precisely because um, if we start to take into account how our habits and our attunement in the world uh, shape the mind, uh, then we then this is an important corollary to how we understand religious rituals. Um, you know, our practices shape the way we think. Uh, we, we tend to think. Uh, again, this is a very modern idea. This old, the idea of a, a, a Weltanschauung, a worldview. You know, so get all of your theoretical ducks in a row, uh, and then go out and live your life, 
right? I mean, you could like Kant is this great example of that. Like to to know the good is all you need to do in order to do the good. Uh, uh, and in cognitive neuroscience today, it still functions very much this way. Um, and uh, uh, but uh, recent research suggests quite to the contrary that the the body teaches the mind. Um, and uh, again, this I think this is a, a perfect corollary to. Um, uh, religious practice and, and religious habits uh, and how they they um, they shape the way we think the way we think about God perhaps even so um, so that probably a good summary uh, for introduction right we've talked uh, early on uh, today about your uh, early, uh, your previous uh, studies your previous research and your uh, educational background Around in uh, philosophy. Yes. Um, so far, you've mentioned Kant. Uh, we were talking earlier about, about uh, Bourdieu. You've talked a little bit about uh, habits. Um, maybe can you give me a, a few key concepts uh, that you work with um, in your own research? Okay. Um, oh, so. Uh, my uh, a big part of my research begins um, uh, with this critique from Merleau-Ponty of Descartes. You know, so um, and what is subjectivity? Well, uh, and then what is intersubjectivity? A lot of my work is on the relationship between self and other, um, which is uh, why it lends itself toward uh, the discussion of, of childhood, and, and hopefully we'll get to discussion of the child later. But. Um, uh, Descartes, right? He famously says, "I'm I'm just a thinking thing." Race cogitans, and um, the body's really ancillary to to the to even my sense of self. Uh, Merleau-Ponty looks at that notion of subjectivity and says, "No, I am my body." Uh, now, sometimes he falters and he talks about having a body, but he his real yeah. insistence is not just that I have my bo- a body, but the thinking goes all the way down. The the embodiment um, is uh, uh, thinking involves this embodiment. It's 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 an attunement to our context, to our world. Um, so uh, there's definitely some Heidegger there in, in terms of like this this notion of being in the world that we have. Kind of this, uh, we always have this kind of mood or attunement. Uh, these are all very Heideggerian terms. Um, uh, and and that which means that our environment is always shaping us and telling us what to think. Uh, in that sense, uh, some embodied uh, co- cognitive thinkers, uh, like Mark Rowland, suggest that thinking even extends out into the world. That you know, like I'm, I'm for those who can't see me right now, I'm moving my hands. And the reality is, I think we actually our our gestures when we talk, uh, they're not ancillary to the pro the process of thinking they actually help us to think uh they they help us get our idea across um uh and 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 so uh they're they're not just kind of the secondary process they're they're part and parcel of what thinking is um so merle ponty's notion of of embodiment of this uh he talks about the self as flesh uh um Hmm. that we uh that the (coughs) internal in the external are not there's not this radical divide between self and other or self and world but there's this fundamental porosity 
the, the, the self is porous and we are, are constantly being influenced by things outside of ourselves and, and that's shaping how we perceive the world. Um, you know, we aren't, we're, we're not, uh, this would be a huge critique of say like, uh, the idea that we're uh, monads, you know, with we living in our houses with just window, windows, right? I think Spinoza or something like that. So, um, very much a critique of all these modern notions of of the self as this like autonomous, self-reflective self. That that's what it means mm. to be human. Uh, but uh, in contrast, no, no. Uh, the, one of the problems with Descartes and Kant. Uh, in, in Piaget and, and, and Freud and a lot of these early uh, even psychologists is that they kind of assume that the uh, autonomous self is in, or in the self-reflective self, the one that is capable of kind of like theoretically thinking about thinking is what what makes you a human. Um, but then infants aren't, aren't humans, if that's the case, uh-huh. um, <laughs> uh, because they haven't arrived at that type and, and, uh, of thinking. And we assume that that's the that you know you have to kind of have that for there to be any type of sense, uh, you know the French word of uh, sens, the uh, meaning uh, not just your senses but uh, an orientation or a meaningfulness about your your world. Um, but the reality is we we already have that before we learn language and before all of these different uh, self reflective activities. Right. Can you tell me in that sense a little bit about your approach to research um what do you do exactly and how do you work that research do you i mean you're not working in in anthropology you're how does mm-hmm. how, how, how does working on child psychology uh within a religious framework works <laughs> how do you do that right, right. okay so um Right, I'm not a. I don't claim to be a psychologist either. Uh, so I have this strange confluence of interests um, that hopefully work uh, between psychology, uh, philosophy, religious studies, and suddenly now I'm dab- dabbling into cognitive neuroscience. But I, I should say, a, a lot of the discussions of subjectivity in cognitive neuroscience stem back to studies of of infants and child psychology. So there's a, a, actually a very strong connection there. So how do I do my research? Um, my, my first book, uh, which is coming out, um, it's called Childlike Peace in uh, Merleau-Ponty and Levinas, uh, Intersubjectivity as a Dialectical Spiral. It's coming out with Lexington Books later this year. Uh, it was very much a phenomenological approach. Uh, let's examine the parent-child relationship as it is in practice. And uh, I, I have two kids, and it was very much a kind of this uh, uh, personal process of, of marrying my, my research with my home life. Um, I hope they, my children don't feel like they were a, <laughs> a, a pet project or something like that. But, but, uh, and, and then combining those uh, personal experiences with just... I mean, lots of reading. Uh, Merleau-Ponty, who I mentioned before, uh, most people only think of him as a philosopher, but he was actually uh, the chair of child psychology at the Sorbonne uh, before Piaget um, uh, for, I believe, about five years. Uh, so he, um, his uh, child psychology work influences me greatly. Um, and, you know, so, so lots of reading um, in, you know, so my training is in phenomenology and continental philosophy, uh, and I'm very much 
dependent on a lot of these authors that are, are working in, in cognitive neuroscience and phenomenology and child psychology and phenomenology. Right. You, you said something that uh, lists something in my mind um, about your, uh, your trajectory, your research path. It's something right. that you're very much, uh, well, aren't we all, but very much influenced by, uh, by um, your actual uh, life in some yes. of that. And you've also talked about this relationship between the self and uh, other, 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 other. How do you see that pertaining to uh, religious studies in general? Do you think that this is... Okay. Something that should be further in religious studies. Right, right. So um, <laughs> this this actually has so much to do about uh, religious practices and ritual. I, I would say I was thinking about a definition of ritual, and um, you know, so first of all, um, uh, Rene Girard. He um, he's so well known for talking about myth, uh, but in in. But his one of his basic notions is, is this notion of mimetic di desire that we are first and foremost imitators that we we all uh, and this is why myth is so powerful and rich ritual is so powerful is because uh, you know we all desire to to have models and you know it's it's as if we can't even help but have models to imitate um, it's just kind of ingrained what it means to be human uh, but ritual. Uh, is this imitation of of a community of communal practices, um, and we uh, we participate in these rituals. And I want I want to say ritual is it's not just distinctly a religious thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, heck, you could go to an American football game and you see rituals. Uh, or, or a baseball game. My, my love is baseball. Uh, you, you, you go to a sporting event, and there's people are engaging in all sorts of rituals uh, almost, that almost seem spiritual in a, in a very in a very deep sense. Um, you know, so uh, but that happens at a very early age in the sense that we we start engaging in imitation of other people's practices, uh, engaging in rituals uh, long before we even. Ha understand the, the their full meaning right and actually most of the rest of our life is unpacking a lot of that um you know so i mean obviously this can be kind of a double-edged sword right um uh religious rituals if if religious rituals are so powerful that they can shape us without really thinking about about it uh that that sounds like well the danger of like brainwashing or something like we this, this, this and and that, that's there that that possibility is there although i i think um religion probably gets um hit too hard with this critique as if you know as if religion is the only way we brainwash people through rituals but think about like our our political practices you know in in america uh you know the 4th of july hmm. is is a a ritual Uh, singing the Star Spangled Banner at the beginning of every sporting event is a ritual uh, that is meant to conform you into a, a specific way of being and a specific way of thinking about your relationship to your citizenship. Um, uh, you know, and some of these things are very good, right? We have a uh, we celebrate Martin Luther King Day. I mean that, and because we have that value, and precisely by celebrating that that and, and engaging in those practices. 
the, the ideas that that will help conform people to that value of equality and civil rights. So uh, this happens very, very early, right? So um, watching my kids, they start imitating how I, I, how I hold things. They start, uh, you know, one example I used with my college students, uh, uh, I have this habit of leaning back in my desk chair and putting both hands behind my back, my head and kind of resting my head on my on my hands, leaning back. And and every time I do it, I suddenly realize, oh my goodness, I'm my father. I am the spitting image of my father. Like it's it's not like my dad ever said, oh, this is how you should rest your head on your hands in your desk chair. I just I just lived into that his way of being. And so all the time. Uh, I'm living out those rituals. Uh, And and again, rituals are this very, I want to make it this very broad category. We are engaging in rituals like this all the time, rhythms throughout our day. You know, like if if your schedule is, you know, wake up and you get your coffee and you listen to the radio and, and you get, you know, you get dressed and, you know, you ride the bus or all these things become rhythms and even rituals. Um, uh, and, and so um, we – this has uh, what uh, Boudou says is they have a, a kind of a, a practical sense to them, a, a, a know-how. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't have to like – again, to refer to Descartes, we don't have to have this like uh, um, self-reflective theoretical representational mode of thinking – uh, like a conceptual form in our head hmm. of what that habit is that we're engaging in. We just do. Uh, we just, you know, think about an athlete who performs uh, a, a sport to the point where it's just, you know, we call it like second nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, the body thinks on its own in, in this sense uh, of, of these habits. So they can become very, for better or for worse, they become very ingrained. Um, and yes, like, uh, we, I, I say, I say this. You know, we. You can disagree with that history. You can, you know, forsake your parents and their the upbringing that they gave you, whether that's politically or religiously or educationally. Uh, but you can't alt. You can't erase it. You know, it's there, and it. You know, it. It, it actually it does send you on a kind of trajectory for the rest of your life. So, how do you see the relationship between this? Uh, educational aspect of rituals or rituality and this uh, okay this is how uh, this is who I am this is what I do this is how I do it uh, how does the other influence the the other okay what's okay. the like is is it a cycle that right, keeps right, rolling right okay so uh, right my so the the subtitle of my book is intersubjectivity as a dialectical spiral um and this is uh again in many ways influenced by levinas uh and merleau ponty both 20th century french philosophers uh and they're looking at the history of uh western philosophical tradition of of the self-other relationship. And there's basically two traditions. One is the Cartesian one, uh, and Kant's kind of influence in that. And, and to some degree, Edmund Husserl, um, hmm. uh, who, who basically think that the, the uh, early Husserl, I'd say, uh, that the self is 
completely autonomous, right? And the, the other is not needed for my, my sense of self. You definitely see that in Descartes, right? I, I can arrive, I get certainty through just my own understanding of my own self. Um, and uh, so, so that notion, notion of this isolated, autonomous individual who can be detached from embodiment and so, society, we got that tradition. The second tradition is, is kind of this thoroughly negative one, uh, the, this notion of Hobbes, of the, of the war of each against all. Uh, you know, Hobbes basically says, uh, we need politics because our, our nature is to kill each other. <laughs> you know, that we, we, our desires are so self-interested. Um, you know, and then you see the same thing recur over and over. Hegel, it's a master-slave dialectic. And um, I, I, yes, I find out that I need your affirmation for my own identity. Uh, but before I get there, I'm trying to kill you. I'm trying to, you know, master you. Uh, and, and, uh, and again, even Sartre, uh, who was a contemporary of Levinas and Merleau-Ponty, kind of famously talks about the gaze of the other, that the other objectifies me and the other um, calls my, my, my existence into questions and, and, and inhibits the freedom of my possibilities. And, and again, uh, Merleau-Ponty and Levinas both mention the parent-child relationship, and I excavate, I excavate that uh, and then bring it into conversation with contemporary child psychology and, and cognitive neuroscience. And, and we say, well, wait a minute. Again, all these guys are, are um, assuming first this self-reflective, autonomous self, uh, this, the cogito, an ego, who then encounters another ego. Um, but that's not how we first interact with other people. Let's look at the parent-child relationship. Um, and when we look at that, uh, it's, it's, it's actually you know, contrary to popular belief. It's not a one-sided relationship. We tend to think of the parent as the, the autonomous one, the one with all the authority, yeah. the one with all the knowledge, who you know, is going to tell that child how to live their life. Um, but after having two kids... I, I, you know, parents don't, you don't have any idea how to be a parent when you become one. Uh, and nothing can really prepare you for that. So actually, the research shows that, you know, yes, of course, the child learns from the parent, but the parent learns from the child. The, there's this, um, it's a reciprocal, I, I, I talk about it as a dialectical spir- spiral because yes. it's not a closed circuit. It's not the circle. I mean, the problem with, say, uh, a circle is, uh, you know, you see this in uh, Descartes or, uh, say, even Aristotle's notion of friendship that, like, I, I go – or in some other forms of, uh, like, Lip's notion of uh, empathy that I basically – empathy for him is a projection of myself into you. Uh, and uh, so when I, when I say I empathize with you, what I'm empathizing is basically with myself projected into you. Um, so the, the other – gets, um, this would be Levinas's critique in that account, the other gets kind of eradicated and gets uh, fused into the self. So the spiral says, no, that this is open. We don't know where it's going. It doesn't, uh, I come back to myself, but I, I'm, I'm in a different place than I was before. I'm qualitatively changed. I've, I've arisen to this new level and, it, and it's expansive. It's, it's exponentially expansive. So rather than start saying the other closes my possibilities, no, the, the other uh, opens me up to all sorts of new ways of being. You know, so I'll quickly give you two examples from both sides in, in this way that both parent and child are teaching the other. So uh, the, the parent 
Um, when you have a, a child, uh, Merleau-Ponty says it, it changes the way you think about your entire uh, environment. You know, so uh, the you know, great, you know, easiest example, the electrical outlet, it, you know, which is something that you just kind of, mun, you know, just don't ever, ever think about as, as, as an adult. It's just a, a provider of power for your laptop. It now is now a death trap to your child, you know. So uh, the and every it turns out everything's a death trap. The stairs are a death trap. Your 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 bed, uh, a child could fall off that. Like everything gets this profound new significance. A new a you, it's a new sense. It's a new orientation. Um, so the child is is completely shaping reshaping your identity. Um, and then, of course, uh, the parent is teaching uh, the child, uh, but we have to, be, before we get to that, we have to admit that, you know, Freud and Piaget were wrong in this idea that the infants' early experiences were just kind of this synesthetic confusion of the senses. Uh, Freud said, that was Piaget, Freud says, uh, thought infants had basically no capacity to see, uh, that they were uh, just purely narcissistic um, uh, affective creatures, but the reality is, um, infants can already imitate behavior as soon as they're born. Infants already have an under uh, a a bodily schema. They already understand how their body works as a as a unit. Uh, uh, by like two months, infants know that when they're being addressed and they look you in the eye. And they, they respond, and it becomes this very... So uh, motherese, you know, when, when mothers or fathers talk in kind of a high-pitched voice and, oh, and, and then repeat things, oh, it's so good to see you, it's, oh, you're so beautiful, beautiful baby. That's the, This is kind of a universal, internationally practiced uh, <laughs> ritual. Um, uh, and it, it's, it actually engages the child to participate. Mm. Um, and, and they know that they're being... Uh, engaged with, and and so it's it's very much this mutual. Uh, I was, we could try describe it as a there's a mutuality, and yet it's an asymmetrical relationship at the same time. That's how I try to describe it. Right. There seems to be a lot of uh, there seems to be a whole reflection on the line, the blurred line between nature and culture, nature yes. and nurture yes. and your research. Yes. How do you how do you s s see that work in terms of the body and in terms of practice? And mm -hmm. um, maybe if you could give me like uh, examples that are that that have to do with uh, let's say like precisely Christian rituals, uh, since you work with. Uh, Mm -hmm. Christianity mm -hmm. mostly, yes. and it seems that you have a background in that context yes. uh, specifically. Okay, um, <laughs> so nature, uh, nurture is our nature. Maybe one way to put it, you know, <laughs> we we are uh, culture is not opposed to uh, our nature as humans. It, it's it's part and parcel of, of what it means to be human, and and I would be. I'm not saying that that is what completely differentiates us from the rest of species. You know, so, you know, for instance, even elephants have like mourning rituals. More, uh, elephants have amazing memories and they go back to burial sites of their, their uh, family for years. And they, they have more, you know, these 
very intricate morning ritual. So uh, depending on how we define culture, right, um, we might see these types of behaviors in other animals as well. But uh, to be human is to engage in these rituals. I mean, it's, it's you know, and so we are all, already attuned to uh, practicing these rituals. Again, uh, so uh, research shows an infant 45 minutes of age uh, can imitate facial gestures. Mm. If you smile, they'll smile. Mm. Um, and uh, and this isn't just a um, emotional contagion. It's not just like uh, the cognitive neurosciences would say. So there's mere, we have mere neurons that they fire not only when we perform an act, but they also fire when we see somebody else perform an act. Hmm. Um, you know, so that is going on. But what we also see is that infants. So the next day, they'll try to perfect that smile even even better. They'll try to make it look more like your smile. You know, and which is crazy, right? They've never even seen themselves in a mirror. Uh, they 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 wouldn't even recognize themselves in a mirror hmm. until they're like twelve months old, okay. uh, and yet they're capable of of perfecting their imitation. So uh, this is kind of just ingrained in, in how we behave. And we recognize human faces and distinguish them from day one. Uh, there's no problem of other minds, right? Uh, <laughs> so how does that shape our religious practices? Um, I mean, I think in general, in general terms, uh, we're already primed for them. You know, so so that would be my first point. Like we, you know, we we aren't. Uh, I say this in in a, a paper I'm working on it that I'll be presenting later. You know, we um, uh, if I can get it this the right way. You know, we don't we don't become ritual making or habitual beings. We we already are. You know, so we you know so religious rituals that are powerful. I think are the ones that tap into uh, that kind of. Uh, I'm not sure if innate is the right word, but uh, that that kind of just capacity that we have just as humans. Um, you know, the Eucharist uh, is an invitation to eat. We all are eaters. You know, we we you know, it's and and we are communal. You know, and the the, the Eucharist. Uh, we could talk about all sorts of different ways and, and, and debate what, you know, I'm not into the, the debates about what actually happens at the Eucharist. Uh, but, but at least on the uh, phenomenological, social, uh, intersubjective level, it's an invitation to community and to hospitality and an invitation to eat. And these are just basic components of what it means to be human, to eat, to taste. Uh, and like I said, we are, you know, to be a subject is to be intersubjectively re- related with others. So it's, it's just an invitation into exactly what we aspire to from day one. Um, we don't, you know, again, like I said, Freud thought um, uh, infants were primarily narcissistic, self-interested selves. Um, Piaget thought we um, uh, that you know, so it was all it was thought, for example, that the babies when they hear other babies cry, uh, they start crying because they can't. They it's a confusion. You know, they, they can't separate or distinguish them, their self from other selves. Hmm. But actually, babies respond differently when they hear a recording of their own cry. Oh. Which suggests that they, there's some type of basic rudimentary sympathy going on there. That, that they are, they can distinguish self 
from uh, you know from other already. Um, but that doesn't mean they want to be this isolated self. There's like this this totally understood need for the other that's already there. And so again, like I, I think a lot of our basic religious practices uh, are based around this understanding of the importance of community, the importance of being. Uh, it's cliche to say, you know, being part of something bigger than ourselves, but to be part of something that gives us a narrative or an orientation into our everyday lives. Um, and, I mean, advertising works the same way. I mean, I mean, think like our consumeristic, capitalistic culture is—it's a narrative that we live into, uh, and it—you know—they probably perform advertising performs religious rituals better than some religions do. Um, in the sense that they they communicate this 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 mentality, they they tell you these truths through this the medium, right? Of this 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 commercial, um, and then you you decide to live into that, um, and by living into that, you embody that those beliefs, um, and that's that's what religious rituals are trying to get us to do. Right, I'm hearing you talk about that, and I hear a lot of. Uh, well, I uh, mm, mm, my research is a lot about uh, gender studies and queer theory, theory uh, in which uh, concepts of agency and performance are central. Do you work at all with these con- con- concepts? Like, let's just say a- agency, this idea that we are kind of free to act upon our own lives, but this <laughs> limit, this freedom is always limited to our to social and cultural right. econ- economical context right. uh, in which we live. Um, how does that pertain right. to your research? Right. Okay, so that's a good one. Um, so, Merleau-Ponty, I'm piggyback off him again, um, he tries to kind of thread this needle and, and create this third way between Right, Sartre's claim that we have this robust libertarian freedom to just choose whatever possibilities we want. Um, uh, and the, on the one hand, on the other hand, there's kind of like, like Foucault basically says, you know, you are precisely what the power structures of your society have told you you are. Um, and and Merleau-Ponty says no, neither of these seem very satisfying uh, because we, yes, we are imitators. And, and so society, agreeing with, like, say, Foucault or in, in, in the structures of, of our society, yes, they shape us, right? Language influences the way you think, uh, <clears throat> even though, I, again, we have to admit, infants think with that pre, pre-verbally. Infants think they have memory without language. So you think, you know, that should explode your head a little bit. Like, <laughs> you know, that, so, so we, uh, what's going on there, you know, we can't say entirely. But uh, so we're not, not all thinking is, is linguistic. But it might still be symbolic. Um, but, uh, but you know, so, yes, our habits ingrain us. They, they create, these are, are like well-worn pathways. And, and our habits are formed by our, our parents, by our upbringing, and all these different things. Um, but on the other hand, uh, where does novelty come from then? I mean, where does creativity come from? Where does... Um, new, where do new ideas come from? Uh, where, do, where does the capacity to question the status quo come from? So, um, you know, pre- pre- precisely because my, my self is expanded when I encounter other people, 
that suggests this this capacity for for growth and the mm-hmm. incoming of the new, uh, the unforeseen. I mean, I, I you know, so the the other is some type of shock to me. Uh, it introduces something new, even about myself. You know, so we could be having this conversation, and you could ask me this question, and it 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 pulls something out of me. Uh, some idea I've always had, but I never verbalized it. And in all of a sudden, I'm like, wow, I didn't even realize I I knew I thought that. But it, but it was precisely through this relationship with this other person that that, that was drawn out. So hmm. uh, I I think we need to at, at at least call this right like a a, a dialectic that never ends between agency and um, you know. And, but but I think right you know so in uh, analytic philosophy, if you read. Um, Anscombe on intention. They really, you know, they want to get this idea that you know free will is only a free action is only when I, you know, explicitly intentionally say I am doing this for this reason. Um, but that's not how. I mean, habits. Maybe your first choice to perform that habit was like that. But then after that, you get the, the your body t- starts working on on its own, and and you know you're not cognitively self-reflectively saying i'm going to participate in this habit once you start doing it you just do mm-hmm. it and so is there no agency there i yes and no i mean habit i think Baudu tries to say this it's between objectivity and subjectivity it's kind of our, our habit our habitus is kind of this in-between space uh, a third place so I, I, that's really what i want to carve out okay maybe <laughs> One last c- question that seems like a like a, a little bit of a vague area area to me. Uh, we've talked a lot about the relationship between uh, ch- children and their parents and how right. education is uh, uh, education influences the ways in which we learn and. Re- Produce stuff that we have learned, um, but what happens when children uh, cohabit? When children um, live together in a community? If they're not, um, if the kids are teaching their parents as well as hmm. the parents are teaching the kids, do kids who are not completely formed couldn't quote do they teach each other in, in, in the sense that um, they're they're kind of floating uh, like like you said there mm, might be some kind of thinking without language do, do yeah. they do that intersubjectively oh gosh maybe this is uh, a little bit <laughs> going too far but uh, that's a good question um I, I, I don't know. Uh, I mean, so like, do four-month-olds communicate with each other in this kind of... That's a good question. Um, <laughs> there, there's definitely some form of the possibility of expression in, in, in that sense. I, I will say, I, I, I don't have a very good answer for that. I will <laughs> say, um, you know, so I have a seven-year-old and a three-and-a-half-year-old, and we brought when we brought the the three and a half year old home when she was a newborn. So there's, you know, three and a half, about three and a half years apart between the two, you know, so we get, we bring her home, put her on the floor and the three year old's doing laps around her. 
and just like sprinting and and uh, and she is just totally enthralled by this, totally trying can't keep can't take her eyes off of him uh, in a very different way than how she engaged with mom and dad. Uh, you know, it's, it's as if the, the best way I could describe it is he my my brother is more like me than my my parents. Kind of this this understanding that uh, the sibling is is closer to uh, a closer sameness than other you know the adult humans. Um, I mean, I, I, I I've just I've observed that in all sorts of different ways that there's kind of this. Um, it's just this unsaid understanding of that relationship that's there. Isn't that just kind of another argument against uh, evolutionist theorists who see kids as, uh, like, like, like you said, as unformed beings, almost right. as primitive human right, right, beings, right. right? Yeah, yeah. So, so definitely. Uh, uh, Kids are a lot smarter than we give them credit for. They, they, um, right? There's certain ways that they they haven't formed ideas, uh, but there's other ways in which they they totally understand. Uh, they, they they totally get the meaningfulness of objects, for instance. You know, I was shocked when I when my my daughter was five months old, and she totally got that my toys were much cooler than the toys <laughs> we gave her. You know, so my my cell phone, my car keys. You know, she doesn't want to play with her faked keys. She wants my keys because um, imitation. Uh, Gerard says this: imitations are always triadic. You know, she she uh, the, there was a more meaningfulness to my keys precisely because I was in relationship to them, and she wanted to be a part of that relationship. Hmm. Uh, at, at four or five months, she got that. Um, it's already there. Um, and, and that carries on through you know, the rest of our lives. We, we, we want to, uh, we could say, uh, and again, Gerard talks about this, coveting is basically a desire to be in relationship more so than just I want that thing. No, I want the relationship that comes with it is, what I, is actually what I want. Um, right. And infants get that. Right. So. Okay, maybe we have time for one little last question um can i talk about neuroscience a little bit sure <laughs> okay um all right so uh let me just let me so big argument that i have for why we know that our bodies think that you know we are embodied thinkers and the thinking is not just embrained uh so there's this current research going on uh by susan harkema at the university of louisville Um, where they are implanting this small device on the bottom of, it's about the size of a pacemaker, on the bottom of the spinal cord of paralyzed patients. Sensory and motor complete um, paralysis. So there's four patients. Uh, sensory and motor complete means they can't feel anything on their, on their legs and they can't move their legs. Um, the... the um, Device has caught allowed these four men uh, who are in their, you know I think 20s early 30s to regain all sorts of capacities. They can stand up. They can they can swivel their legs around. They can do sit ups. Uh, they've regained. Uh, this is what's really fascinating. So most people don't realize 
uh, when you get paralysis, um, you often lose your cardiovascular controls. You lose your control to regulate body temperature. You Mm. lose your control to have sex. Uh, You um, lose uh, your, um, you know, your regulation of your, the flow of blood through your veins. Uh, All of that has been regained by these, these, uh, in these four individuals. Uh, And here's the kicker. Even, even though there are, is the the study is showing there's no uh, complex data coming from the brain, so the the spinal cord still detached from the brain, mm-hmm. and they're capable of performing all of these behaviors, uh, and all that that like basic bodily stuff, the, the regulation of temperature and the cardiovascular aspect, uh, that is now happening even when the device is turned off. So wow. the body has been reawakened. To its possibility in the world, it, 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 it's it's like it, it's it's like it brought it uh, out of this slumber, and now it's like no, I'm I should start bringing in information again and and, and engaging with my environment. So the the conclusion is um, it, they have two theories right now: either the spinal cord, so when the um, device is turned on, they can stand up, they can move their legs, they you know they can feel the wind on their and the hairs of their legs. Um, the, the first theory is the spinal cord is thinking on its own. The spinal wow. cord is, is just as intelligent as the brain. This is what Susan Harkema, the, the, the lead researcher on this, says. The spinal cord is, is figuring out how to respond to its environment. And, and, uh, and the second theory is that the spinal cord is actually teaching the brain new pathways. Our, our, our brain is actually very plastic and malleable. Um, mm-hmm. We can alter our brain. And so the, the theory is our body is retraining the brain how to work in this environment, at least to get some sense of uh, agency, like the act of will. This is not an involuntary reflex. These, these people say, oh, I'm going to lift my leg up, and they, they can do it, um, even though the brain's not, not functioning in, in relationship with the spinal cord the way it should. Um, so what does this reveal? I think what this reveals, uh, why can they do this? I think it's because they've had... You know, thousands upon thousands of days of using their legs, of 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 moving their body, and um, the the body uh, is just tapping into that those years of of habits of resource of the of these you know well worn pathways of walk of you know of walking and standing and moving the legs. So. Um, you know what the corollary of that for religious practice? I mean, think about this. Like, if if that's how walking is, I mean, that's how our, all of our religious practices are. They they become kind of uh, resources or storehouses for for um, ways of being in the world for the rest of our lives, uh, and and can be you know even after a fundamental fracture uh, like paralysis, they can be reawoken and and, and you know, we can dive back into them and, and, and use them. Right. To end, maybe on a f- funny note. Okay. Um, are we entering zombie territory? Territory there. I thought about that. <laughs> um, you know, uh, I mean, the idea of the zombies, right? Walking Dead is that they're using just this one little tiny spot in their brain, and that's why they don't have all these other functions. Um, so I don't know. Um, yeah. Could, uh, I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't know how much further I could go down that route. Um, 
we need to change the way we think about thinking, you know, and, you know, the, the problem is we're so pervasive in how we think about this, uh, that cognition is what happens in the brain and that even our language fails us here. We have to rethink these very terms, um, to, to think about how we are primarily movers first and then we become kind of self-reflective higher level thinkers and, and there's nothing that's not to disparage higher level thinking we need that too but most of what we do on an everyday basis is this very you know we don't have to think about putting our clothes on in the morning and, and whatnot we just do it we you know how many times have you you've been driving someplace and you get there and you're like how did i get here <laughs> I, I don't even remember. It was just this habit. You've been to work so many times that you don't even have to think about driving to get there. Um, these are well-worn pathways that we just live into. And they're deeply yeah. meaningful. I think, you know, we like to say that uh, rote, rote uh, practices are, are meaningless. No, I think it's the opposite. That's wrong-headed. The things that are rote so much that we don't have to think about are the ones that are actually deeply meaningful to us. And we, we They have so much meaningfulness to them. Uh, embedded into the practice that we don't, you know, uh, on the practice itself. So we don't have to spend all this energy thinking about it. So, thank you. Excellent. Thank you. That was Martin Lepage for the RSP. Thank you. Wonderful. Thanks so much for that, Martin. And we have another interview with Martin coming up in a couple of weeks. Yeah, with Mark Jergensmeyer. Uh, but first... Next week um, is an interview that Dusty Hosley has recorded for us. And it takes on the topic of yoga, which is something that we haven't covered on the Religious Studies Project, again, specifically. But rather than reifying it, it's looking at historical, popular, and scholarly constructions of yoga. Yeah, looking very much forward to that. And the response for that is by our friend Sammy Bishop, who is joining the respondents team. She's one of our new respondents. And if you would be interested in, in joining our respondents pool for the new batch of interviews that are going to be coming out in the autumn time, um, then do drop a line to editors at religiousstudiesproject.com and Tommy will put you on the list. And we should flag up that the interview is with David Gordon White. Um, so thanks to Dusty for recording that. Um, we're keen to, 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 to get wrap up here because it's so sunny and warm in Edinburgh. We're just not used to it. We're, we're possibly going to have a cheeky afternoon pint and strategize. But um, we'll leave you with the usual admonitions to check out our Facebook, Twitter, Google+, and YouTube channels or feeds. Google Play. Oh, yes, and we're on Google Play and iTunes and other um, pod providers. And don't forget our Amazon links, .co.uk.com and .ca. Just, you know. Mm, thanks. Thanks. Thanks for listening. Thanks, thanks for listening. Yes, thanks. Thanks. Cheers. Cheers.